0: We are into week four of our Seeking God's Direction sermon series here at Trinity Bible Church. And so far, we have covered, I think, quite a bit of ground. Uh, We started four weeks ago as we launched a a capital campaign as well to to try and follow the Lord's direction with with how we steward our our building and our land. Uh, We started four weeks ago with uh, our mission statement. We said, listen, we exist at Trinity Bible Church to see people transformed into fully devoted followers of Jesus. And we've tried to lay that as the foundation for everything we do in our services, in our, in our midweek gatherings, in our, in our groups, in, in everything we do at Trinity. That is the mission, to see people transformed into fully devoted followers of Jesus. And then we we said we have this vision of being a, a lighthouse in the Bow Valley that 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 this place this property we have an outpost where the light and glory of Jesus burst out the windows and blow off the roof and 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 shine uh, the the light and glory of God into the Bow Valley and around the world. And so we've talked about how this capital campaign and this, this building project are all a part of fulfilling that mission, how they will, will help us to uh, be light and, and create places for people to uh, meet Jesus here in the valley. Last week, we started talking about uh, the generosity part of the series which is always fun as a preacher to step into especially multi weeks preaching on generosity but we started uh, rooting this whole discussion on the the fact that that God is generous and all of our generosity all of our generosity comes from that anyways because he has been generous with us we live to be generous with others and we, we looked at the question well how do we know how do we know God is generous how can you how can you say that And we presented four proofs, if you will, four reasons or answers to that question. First, we said creation itself points to God being generous with us. We can look out the windows and say, this is one of the most beautiful places on the planet. And we can look around and we can see God's handiwork in all of it and say, God has been generous with us. That he has put us on this planet that's that's not too close to the sun that it burns up, not too far away that it freezes up more than it did a few weeks ago in January when it was really cold But God has given us this this creation. We can can grow food. We can have crops. All these things are are examples of God's generosity towards us. And we said uh, the whole idea, concept of salvation, that God so loved the world that he sent his son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life is an example of God being generous. God could have let us turn our way and just let us be. But instead he said, no, I, I want you. I want you to come back. Here's how you come back. We talked about redemption, how, how God can, can use the situations in our lives, the, the, the tragedies and those things that, that happen around us for his good and his glory. I, I talked about Mark Hall, how God is using his, his dyslexia and his ADHD, and yet he is still leading one of the largest work, worship bands in North America to draw so many people to Jesus. We looked at the example last week of Joni Erickson Tata, who has been a quadriplegic for 52 years, give or take at this point. And she said, do you know what? I wouldn't change a thing because God is good. The redemption, how God redeems our situations, our traumas is an example of how he is generous to us. And finally, the fourth thing we said is the whole idea of invention or that we as a people can create as well. It's just an example how God has been generous with us so that we can create things like furnaces and electricity and harness electricity to have light in the building. All these things, cars to get around, all these things are examples of God giving us the mind to to act out of our being in his image and create. Four proofs that God has been so generous with us. And we said God is the ultimate giver. And so because of that, we can be generous because he has been generous with us. It's all rooted in him anyways. And so this morning we want to continue our series and look at the topic of, of being generous with our treasure. That is... Money and possessions. And if you're visiting for the first time, and maybe this is the first time you've walked into a church, and one of the reasons you haven't come into a church before is you said, all they talk about is money, and I don't want anything about that. Sorry. This morning we're going to talk about our treasure and money and possessions. Because I bet, for many or most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we would say that, that there is a direct connection between our minds, our money, and our discipleship, the way we follow Jesus. They are intricately connected. They're woven together like a braid. And as a, as a father of a five-year-old girl, I'm learning about braids. I'm not quite ca- caught up to uh, mom's braiding ability, but I tell you, I had a really good one this week that I needed to brag about, so... <clears throat> These things are are all tied together like a braid or like an intersection of three highways coming together in one place. The the way we think and the things we dream about, the way we deal with our money and our finances and, and the way we follow Jesus, they're all tied together. And so this morning we want to spend a few minutes looking at this intersection, this braid, if you will, of mind, money, and discipleship, how we follow Jesus. And we want to see what God has to say about this connection between these three elements in our lives. And so ultimately, the question that shapes our discussion this morning is this. What is God's way when it comes to how we think about money? What's God's way when it comes to how we think about money? Because God's way is discipleship. It's how we follow him. If we want to understand his way when it comes to our treasure, that's the goal. As we follow him, that's what we want to do this morning. So what is God's way? Well, we're going to come at that from a few different angles over the course of this series. But this morning, I want to look at four foundational principles about money that the Bible teaches on. And the first one is this. It really, we kind of alluded to it a bit already, but it is, it is a foundational principle. We'll call it the ownership principle. And this is that, uh, what it means is that all we have isn't ours. It's God's anyways. And again, that, that might sound a bit familiar to last week where we said we can be generous because God has been so generous. But the ownership principle is this, that all that we have, it isn't ours. It belongs to God. And so let me read from a few different spots in the Bible and see if you can hear this principle coming out of these texts. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. In Job 41, this is God speaking. "Uh, Who has the claim against me that I should pay them? Everything under heaven belongs to me psalm 50 verse 12 again if i were hungry i would not tell you for the world is mine and everything in it acts seventeen, twenty four to 27 luke writes the god who made the world and everything in it the lord of heaven does not live in temples built by human hands and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything rather he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else for in him we live and move and have our being And the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1 writes this, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. And so if we want to understand God's way when it comes to uh, money and possessions and the way stuff plays into our lives, we have to start here with the ownership principle. That everything we have, without exception, including the air that's in your lungs in this moment, belongs to God. And so if we want to grow in our generosity, it starts here. And for those of us who would call ourselves followers of Jesus as well, we are we are doubly owned by God. This ownership principle comes at us in two ways, because it's only by Jesus that we are in him, right? Jesus has purchased our our salvation he's purchased our redemption and, and paid for our rescue through uh from our sin and rebellion because of his death and resurrection so we're doubly owned consider first corinthians six nineteen and 20 where paul writes don't you know that your bodies are temples of the holy spirit who is in you and whom you have received god you are not your own you were bought with a price now maybe it's just me but living this way doesn't come naturally to me. I see I'm not the only one. Thank you. I heard one pastor say it this way. He said, there is little difference between a three-year-old who just must have that happy meal at McDonald's and me as a fully grown and reasonably mature adult who at times can be so demanding that it's clear deep down, I believe it's my inherent right to possess anything I want. He says, as humans, our natural inclination is to reach out, pull everything in our lives close to our chest and then declare mine over it all like some master who has just finished the purchase of every hotel and every piece of property in a game of Monopoly. See, but here's the amazing thing about the Bible. It speaks to this in our lives as well. God knows our hearts. God knows that this is our natural inclination Listen to what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 8. God has, has rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. He's led them through the desert. He's brought them to this promised land. They've done nothing to earn or deserve any of this. And he's about to give it to them. And he says this. Be careful. Beware that in your plenty you don't forget the Lord your God and disobey his commands. For when you have become full and prosperous and have built fine homes to live in, and when your flocks and herds have become very large and your silver and gold have multiplied along with everything else, be careful. Don't become proud of that time and forget the Lord your God who rescued you from slavery. He led you through the great and terrifying wilderness. He gave you water from the rock. He fed you with manna in the wilderness. And he did this to humble you and test you for his own good. He did all this so that you would never say to yourself, I've achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy. He says, remember the Lord your God. He's the one who gives you the power to be successful. So I wonder in what we've talked about so far in this principle, if you can hear the lie of the enemy starting to stir up in those closing words. For thousands of years, we have been lied to. Our enemy wants us to believe that that we are the source of everything we have. That we earn it. That everything we have is because of the work of our own hands. And so we deserve it. And honestly, as I prepared this week, I realized that, again, that this is an area of weakness for me. And one I need to constantly keep in check. Because it's so easy for me to think that the things that are mine or, or ours, I'm married and so ours, that these things are mine because we've worked hard. We've invested time and energy. We've made some strategic decisions. We haven't done something so that we could have other things. And we've done it by ourselves. Look at us. We're great. It's easy to wind up thinking that, isn't it? And yet this first principle affirms with Scripture that that all that we have isn't ours. It belongs to God. And if that's the case, think about how you you treat something that belongs to someone else. An example. uh, I grew up in Edmonton, I've got two brothers and a sister, and so my first car was a 2000 Volkswagen Golf, and I I loved that little green Golf, We, we bombed around that thing, you could fit more than you could imagine in the back of that thing on camping trips, whatever else, loved this car. Now, my little brother, I have two of them, both little, he goes out and buys all of our dream car. So now he's bombing around in a 2007 Subaru WRX STI, and the little brother, he's not supposed to have better things than his older brother, right? But every once in a while, every once in a while, if you, if you caught him in just the right mood, asked just the right way, maybe bribed him somehow, he let me borrow this car. I drove his car completely different than I would drive my own car. 10 and 2, speed limit, 5 under the speed limit maybe, right? Because if I scratched or dented or worst his car, That's a way bigger problem than my car, right? So think about how we treat someone else's possessions compared to our own. It is so easy for us to be lulled into this trap of forgetting who all of this belongs to anyways, who made all of this, who who gave us life and who has given us everything we have. And so if we want to conquer this lie that that we deserve this, we own this, this is ours, it's going to involve a choice when we start to see God as the owner of all things, we can start to make that choice to faithfully steward, faithfully care for the things he has given us. And so the first challenge, the first choice of these, as you walk through these four principles is this. Let me sort of challenge you to decide that because God is the owner of everything, I will faithfully steward, faithfully care for all the things that he has given me. That's a shift, isn't it? The second principle that helps us understand God's way when it comes to money, uh, this one may be, uh, sound a little bit more familiar, it's probably the one we talk about most, is the treasure principle, which says, you know, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And it comes, of course, from Matthew 6, verse 19 to 21. This is the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' longest, most, uh, longest recorded sermon, his best uh, remembered words, if you will, and he teaches us this. Don't store up treasures on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them, where thieves break in and steal. Instead, store up your treasures in heaven, where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Because wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. Those last words are really important. Wherever we are storing up those treasures, that's where the desires and hopes and dreams of our hearts go. When we read the word heart in those words of Jesus, Jesus isn't talking about the muscle that pumps blood around our body and keeps us alive, but he's talking about our sense of affection, the things that might be our our deepest and truest loves. And so if you want to know where someone's true affections are, or uh, I want to say worse, but not worse, uh, more honestly, if you want to see where your own true affections are, look at where you're storing up treasure. Where are you investing your time? Where are you investing your money? Where are you investing your your energy and your finances? What are you talking about most? That's what you treasure. And Jesus knew that, that money and possessions and stuff has a death grip on our hearts. And so he talked about money a lot. More than heaven and hell combined, Jesus did. See, he knew that, that so often if we follow the, the money and treasure, we'd see that our hearts belong to those things, not to God. That our affections are, are following our treasure or, or whatever other idol that, that money is providing, and it, it gives us the opportunity to worship that thing instead of God as the most, most important thing in our lives. Jesus knew that if we would place our treasure first and foremost into the kingdom of God, then our affections and our heart would follow it there as well. But if we are first and foremost placing our treasure into our own kingdom, then similarly our hearts will be right there in our kingdom as well. And if that's true, if we're spending more time investing in our kingdom and then than in God's kingdom and our hearts are more focused on us, and not Him, then our lives won't be filled with things like the fruit of the Spirit. It won't be filled with the priorities that are, that are common to those who follow Jesus, to disciples. Our hearts won't be loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, or loving our neighbors as ourselves. And so this points to the lie, another lie of the enemy that, that we can be disciples, that we can be fully devoted followers of Jesus, and yet pour our treasure into our own kingdom. Those things cannot be true at the same time. What Jesus is saying here in this treasure principle is this. If there's something on the throne of your heart today and it's not me, if it's, if it's money, that's a problem. He's saying, if you want a relationship with me, if you want the eternal life promise, if you want to go to heaven, you've got to give your heart to me, your, your affections to me, your greatest affection needs to be me and my kingdom, not yourself and your stuff and your kingdom. And so, for your heart's affection to really go to Jesus for him to be able to sit on the throne of your heart, you need to reroute your treasure. If we reroute our treasures, our hearts will follow them. That's what he said, right? If we, if we give it up, if we recognize where it's come from, recognize that we want our treasure to be in heaven and follow Jesus, we need to reroute that, reroute those things. You might be familiar with the story of the rich young man who came to Jesus in the gospel. He came to Jesus asking what he need to do to get into heaven. And he was, he was a religious guy and really interesting. He said, you know what, Jesus, I, I know the law. I know the rules. I'm good with all of them. I passed them all. But he just wanted to be sure. So Jesus, I've, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. I'm good, right? But as we read, and this, I was reading this in my, my personal time this week, this is really important. Jesus looked at him and his list and said, you know, he loved him and said, how's your heart? Where's your heart at? He said, reroute your possessions towards my kingdom and not yours. He said, go sell everything, give it to the poor and follow me. And the man walked away from Jesus. Now it is really easy for us to read this, see this encounter between this young man and Jesus and shake our heads and say, how could he walk away from Jesus? But I wonder, how often do we do the same thing when it comes to our finances? Ah, Jesus, you say you want that, but... Well, my skis are a couple of years old, so. So we have another choice to make. Well, we stand here at the intersection of mind, money, and discipleship. And we challenge you to choose this. Because God has wired my heart to follow his treasure, I will put what he provides into what he treasures. I will reroute my stuff to his kingdom. Because it's his stuff. What do you think about that? Have, have you made that choice? Do you need to maybe renew that decision this morning? Maybe are you ready to do it for the first time? And I hope you see, I, was, I often say, I don't try to compare the first and second services, but I actually do it quite a bit. We got to about this point, and it's much like this. It was pretty quiet. <laughs> right? Like this, this topic hits pretty close to home. There's not many that are saying, well, well I don't have to deal with any of that. This is really practical and, and really relevant and, and the stakes as we walk through these principles start to get a little bit higher with each one. And as we wrestle with these things, we in our minds, even right now as you listen to this, you're making decisions about what to do with, with your stuff, with your, with your money in light of what God's word is saying to us. And all those decisions that all of us are making, even right now, have an awful lot to do with what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And as we wrestle with some of these things, and as they're they're rattling through our minds, some of these decisions, God may be speaking to you. Now, he may be saying, yes, you are following me in this. You're doing a great job. Keep it up. He may be saying, your heart used to be here with me, but it's distracted and it's drifting. Shifting to someone else. Can, Can we talk about rerouting things back to me? Or maybe for the first time, you feel like God is asking you, Can you trust me in this? Will you trust me in this? You said you trust me with other things, but boy, you hang on to that, I was going to say checkbook, but does anyone hold their checkbook tight anymore? You hang on to your bank card pretty tight. Will you trust me in this area of your life? Now, wherever you are on that spectrum, and it is a spectrum, and all of us are in different places, let me encourage you to to lean into this, to wrestle with this, and as God speaks, choose to obey him. As we head into the third principle, again, if there's one thing you take home this morning, take this. That we can deal with our money our way or God's way, but God's way is far better than our way. The third principle for this morning, we'll call it the wisdom principle. And this says that the Bible is perfectly capable of teaching us how to deal with our money. And I alluded to this a bit earlier, but do you know that the Bible talks about money more than 800 times? And there are more than 2,000 verses talking about stuff and possessions and money. And the New Testament, which teaches us about Jesus coming and the inauguration of the kingdom of God and all the implications of Jesus coming and the kingdom of God coming. One out of every seven verses talks about money. Almost half of Jesus' parables focus on money as their subject about 15% of everything he said, Jesus said in the four gospels addresses money and possessions again, more than he taught on heaven and hell combined. We often, as we walk to the gospel and see Jesus life, we see that he dealt with money. He flipped the money, money changers tables. He told the Pharisees, yeah, go pay your taxes to Caesar. He pointed out a widow who emptied her purse as as an example of generosity he told that rich young man to, to leave his riches and follow him. His stories were, were practical too. He tells the story of a manager who was fired for misusing funds. Employees who practiced good and bad asset management. Workers that complained about their wages. A man who found a buried treasure. A merchant who found a pearl and spent everything to buy that pearl. And while many of Jesus' 39 parables have deeper meanings than just money, Jesus often used Money to talk about the kingdom of God. So he talks about it a lot. Elsewhere in Scripture, we're given a way more great wisdom as well. Look at the Proverbs alone. A few examples there: Proverbs fifteen sixteen, better to have a little and know the Lord, have fear of the Lord, than great treasure and turmoil. Proverbs ten four, lazy hands bring poverty, but hardworking hands bring riches. Proverbs seventeen five, whoever makes fun of a poor person insults his Maker. Whoever is happy to see someone's distress will not escape punishment. Proverbs 23, 4. Don't wear yourself out getting rich. Be smart enough to stop. Proverbs eleven twenty eight. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but righteous people will flourish like a green leaf. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first and best part of all your income. And then your barns will be full and your vats will overflow with fresh wine. Proverbs twenty seven, twenty three, and twenty four. Be fully aware of the condition of your flock and pay close attention to your herd. Wealth is not forever, nor does a crown last from one generation. To-